Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. All right. <clears throat> Trust you've got your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to continue our series on uh, living Christianly as we consider just as all that's going on in this world, uh, from COVID to unrest, uh, and add to it, we're in election season. So, you know, what else could go wrong, right? Uh, but we're trying to navigate these waters, and I think we all know that uh, we're living in challenging days, challenging times, and I think sometimes as, as Christians we can get swept up in all that's going on and, and, and unintentionally uh, begin just playing the playbook of the world and not thinking necessarily what this looks like uh, through the lens of a Christian worldview. And so as is typical in election year, uh, the clash of ideas is on full display, Right? Uh, you can't uh, turn on the radio, turn on the TV without the clash of ideas coming. And, and though I'm a, a young 37, I don't know if there's an old 37, but uh, even though the, my limited years, uh, I haven't seen uh, as much hostility uh, in my lifetime. And even as I talk to some of our more mature saints, as we like to call them, uh, they would echo some of those things. And, uh, and see that we are living in very tense times. Uh, but matters of great importance are being discussed, aren't they? Matters of, of, of importance, whether it's matters of injustices in our world, thinking about matters of poverty and even human sexuality, all these things are in uh, the debate zone of our world. However, as our nation's leaders and political pundits and, and, and you, you name it are begin to debate these things, the merits of their ideas concerning the prosperity of our country, as we consider everything that is, that is being thrown at us and considering these ideas, here's what I want us to keep in mind. We need to keep in mind that their discussions on policies and procedures rarely, if ever, get to the real heart of the problem, namely human sin. We've reached a point where our society only pays attention to the external symptoms that we see. And that's understandable. That's what we see on the, on the forefront, what gets the headlines, if you will. And how do we address these things? And we can find ourselves reactionary, just, just trying to, to, to put out fires, but never actually finding out what's causing the fire. It's not as Billy Joel says it. The world hasn't been burning since the world's been turning. Uh, we at least had Genesis 1 and 2. He just didn't have that part. But as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to think about our, our role in this. I want you to think about yourselves as, as we should be thinking. We're to be in our society the moral conscience, if you will. The moral conscience helping our society see the heart of our countries, our world's problems. And the heart of that problem is 
finds its root in human sin. I want to draw your attention to one pastor and theologian, a Dutch pastor by the name of Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink uh, lived 100 years ago, but uh, he, uh, as a pastor, theologian, even a statesman, stood before the Congress in the Netherlands and, uh, and, and, and began to address the social ills of his day and particularly gave a resolution on the floor concerning the matters of poverty and, and even um, concerns about um, vocation and work and struggles that they were having in the Netherlands. And the reason I bring this up is because if you know anything about the Netherlands, you know it is one of the most godless societies um, on our planet. And a hundred years ago, they were dealing with some of the very issues that we're dealing with today, things that are being debated. And as you know, that they did not heed the warnings And uh, I fear that we would be on the same path as well. But this is what Bavink says. Imagine someone standing on the Senate floor today saying these things. He says to his fellow statesmen, the first order of the day is restoring our proper relationship with God. The cross of Christ, therefore, is the heart and midpoint of the Christian religion. Jesus did not come, first of all, to renew families and reform society, but to save sinners and to redeem the world from the coming wrath of God. This salvation of our souls must be our ultimate concern for which we are willing to sacrifice everything, father and mother, house and field, even our own lives in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. However, he goes on to make a secondary point secondary argument that flows from this primary one. He goes on and he says, from the principle of reconciliation with God, all other human relationships are given a new ordering and led back to their original state. God is the owner of every human being and their possessions. We are simply tenants, renters, and must give an account for our stewardship. Can you imagine that being said today? that kind of engagement on the Senate floor. But here's what I want to propose to us as the moral conscience of the human race, that these are precisely the type of arguments that we need to be making as we seek to engage the world's ideas. We need to engage them with the living word of God. We need to engage them, calling them to to, to repentance and faith, calling them and letting the word bear on their hearts as image bearers. We know who they were designed to be, and we can appeal to their conscience for what they know is true, but they have suppressed an unrighteousness. We're to be like John the Baptist, who calls not only his nation, but also its leaders to repentance, to turn from serving idols to serving the true and living God. We know that only Christ can solve society's ills. We know that. And yet, for some reason, we we don't engage that way. We don't. We just pick up the talking points. And here's what I want us to understand, that that we don't see the priority of heaven as necessarily opposed to the concerns of earth. We don't see them as opposed to each other because we know, as, as we're going to see here in Colossians, that Christ came and his work was not only to reconcile 
all things in heaven, but all things on earth by the blood of the cross. He is reconciling the whole world to himself. And therefore, as those who have been reconciled to God through the cross, that's us, that's the church, he is reordering our lives, isn't he? He reorders who we are on an individual basis. We saw last week he is reordering our families according to his design. And actually what we're going to see this morning is that he even reorders our vocation and how we view our work. He's bringing all these things in subjection to his rule back to their original state, both now at the present time and into glory. And so in this way, we not only experience the blessedness of God's design in our lives, but guess what? When you're out in the workplace, in in the place, in the debate, in the sphere of ideas, guess what? We can call people to a better way, to the way that God has created them, and we can do so with credibility. That's the one thing that neither party can do. They can't call anybody to anything with credibility. Because... We look and we see corruption. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can come in with a moral conscience and say, here's how to rightly live and how to experience the blessing of God. We're calling the world to be ordered according to how God designed them. We have truth on our side. And so this is my point this morning, which I think will be up on the Screen as those who care for the souls of men and women, and don't we? As we care for those made in the image of God, we must not only be concerned with their eternal destiny, though we are, but also seek to make it possible for them to fulfill their earthly calling. We, like Christ, are carrying out the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling them to heaven and reconciling things on earth. It has a twofold purpose. I think sometimes when we're doing evangelism, and I'm going to pick this up in our last sermon in the series on the mission of the church, but for now I want you to think, when we think of evangelism, we're often calling people to repentance and faith, which is right, and we should do that, but, it, but we leave out, what does that look like? What does that mean for me now? And right now, it, it no longer seems to get much traction to say, hey, when you die, you get to go to heaven. They don't even believe in heaven. We have to tell them how being reconciled to Christ transforms them now and for eternity. Because that's where we are. And so this is why Paul exhorts the church in Colossians 3.23. And I'll read what Allison read, at least again, the first part. He says, whatever you do, and he's talking here in the context of, of work. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work from the soul, work from the heart, as for the Lord and not for men. Today's going to be more of a theological um, reflection on what does that mean? What does it mean to work heartily for the Lord? Think devotionally, think deeply, let's dig in. What does that look like? Because as I'm going to hopefully show us is that Paul here in Colossians is drawing from a a deeper theology of what it means to be made in the image of God and applying it in this case. So I want us to consider what it means to work unto the Lord in such a way that pleases him, but also serves our fellow neighbor. And so first of all, we need to recognize that work is from the Lord. We need to recognize that work is from 
the Lord. I think oftentimes we consider our work as just a necessary evil, don't we? Oh, it's just something that I got to put up with. And we adopt the mindset of I'm working for the weekend. If I could just get to Friday, right? If I could just get to Saturday or whenever that break is, oh, now life is worth living. And we, we cast our jobs often in such negative light. And so in this way, work is viewed as merely a means, an avenue to fund our leisure and our entertainment. Now, don't hear me say there's no room for leisure and entertainment. There is. We should enjoy the, God's good creation. Everything comes from him. And we can rightfully, as Christians, give honor and thanks for all the good gifts that he's given us. But it would be too narrow of a view to, to somehow view our work and our op- occupations, or even as a student, those of you who are college students, and merely just say, oh gosh, if I could just get out of this, somehow then I'll be really living. No, work is actually from the Lord, and such a narrow view of work fails to understand that we have a creator, a God, who works. He works, and he's perfectly holy, good, just, and and happy, and and self-sustaining. In fact, from the beginning of creation, we, we know the story. We've been spending some time in Genesis. But we look in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see that our God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And this is significant for us because in the way that God has created the world, we know that the whole world declares the glory of God, that we can see in the the fabric and patterns of this creation and actually speaks to who our God is. In considering work, he has embedded even a pattern for work. Six days and one day of rest. He's given us a pattern, and even this pattern reflects his structure, his design, his purposes for what is good for humanity. And so what I want you to consider here is that, oh my, okay, even before the fall, this pattern was here, and work dominates the week, doesn't it? I think some of us would say, oh, if I could work one day and have the rest as leisure, then I'd really be living, and actually you would dissolve. You weren't created to sit like a lump on a log, right? Now, we understand we are in a uh, post-fall world and our bodies begin to deteriorate. We can't do what we used to do. But but, but there isn't a, a virtue of being lazy. It actually destroys you, both physically and spiritually. And that's because we know that God has created us to be workers, we read in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. And he had worked six days that week. Then we see on the seventh day in Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What I want you to see, and just that pattern built into creation, is that work originates from our good and loving Father. Work originates from our God, the maker of heaven and earth. Work is good, and so is rest. But it puts it in its proper context and flow and emphasis. God has woven into the fabric of his creation a design which reflects the pattern of work and rest for his creatures to follow. 
Now, don't hear me arguing necessarily for a Sabbatarianism. I don't have time to unpack that if you don't know what it means. But there is a pattern, a, a balance that we should find rest. But it should be in right proportion for how God has created us to work. This is part of being made in the image of God, what it means to be human. And therefore, we must also, number two, recognize that work is in partnership with God. And in a real sense, brothers and sisters, you and I are co-creators with God. Now, now don't freak out hearing that. Not in the sense that we are God. No. God created all things out of nothing. But what I want us to see is that he has created us and he has given us a whole world to pillage and to use and to, to create, Right? We learned this in Genesis 1.28, that part of being made male and female in the image of God is that we would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and exercise dominion over it. God places Adam in the garden, and what does he do? He entrusts him to work it and to keep it. God has given us the whole creation as his image bearers to create and multiply. To create like him. So you just think about it. Generally speaking, humans create a family. They get together, and what do they do? They, they get to work. They multiply, right? Babies are formed. We got lots of babies. You can hear them cooing and on all right now. That's a good thing. That's what we're created to do. We, we multiply ourselves. And there's a sense in which, though, it's not like God, but it is. We are able to bring new life into the world. But not only that, but we can then organize this world. As, as families begin to develop and populations, you have a society, which we saw last week. The family is the foundation of every society. And then you have a family order, right? Well, now families have to organize, right? That's part of being made in the image of God. That's part of working, creating this world to be a beautiful place that everyone wants to inhabit and love and live. And live to the joy and glory of God. And so we build structures, not just buildings, but even organizational structures. We come to terms. We have legal documents. All these things. And we begin to build. We begin to dream. We begin to invent, paint, compose, design, dream. We do it all. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We bear his likeness in the world. We're creating, inventing. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? So as we do these things, we actually put the beauty of God's power and wisdom on display in the world. We do that. I mean, just recently we've seen beautiful bridges built, right, across connecting Indiana and Kentucky. I mean, you, you may disagree with the color, but all those things, but it's quite impressive, right? These things are wonderful that... When we see them, they bring great blessing to us, but yet there were creative minds behind that that were just mind-boggling. And yes, we're, we're at the other side of the fall, and so we've got to maintain those bridges because they will fall apart one day. <laughs> but nevertheless, we see a glimmer of God's power and character on display. But even though that we have rebelled against God, and, and work is difficult, isn't it? Some of you are dreading tomorrow. Some of you are dreading. Maybe you got to clock in afterwards. you got work later today. And, and, and work is hard, isn't it? When we work, the, 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 the fruit of our labors is harder to, to yield. The fruit isn't just as fruitful. But what I want you to see here in Colossians is that Christ has come to restore where the image of God has been marred. He's bringing all things together. Go, go back to Colossians 3. 
And Paul begins to explain how reconciliation with God actually results in reconciliation in the world. That's what that, that quote was talking about from Herman Baving. We must be reconciled with God because once we're right with God and his design, actually you will see right ordering in the world. And Paul does the same thing here. Look in verses 1 through 4. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. What does he mean by that? If you've been regenerated, you've been born again, you have become a Christian. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now what is he saying here? You might be saying, okay, i got to set my mind on things above, in heaven. I need to even be having my eyes on the return of Christ. When, when Christ appears, he is my life, and I'm going to appear. And you could conclude maybe if we stop there, well, that means, goodness, I'm just trying to pass through. I'm just mailing it in till Christ comes. And you would be wrong. Because as we come to verse 5 and onward, Paul then begins to put some flesh on these bones. He begins to show us tangibly, well, what does it look like to live for heaven and not on earth? And it begins with the individual in verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. That's what it means not to set your mind on the things of this earth. What does that mean? Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now, now that you've become a Christian, now that you've been raised with Christ, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, if you're not paying attention, pay attention. What does it mean to put on the new self? You put off the old self and its flesh and sinful desires. You put on the new self, which is Christ. But I want you to see what he describes us as. Put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed, restored, reconciled in knowledge after the what? Read it. After the what? The image of its creator. You see how it all comes back to that first sermon? If you weren't here, go back and listen to it. The image of God. He is restoring the image of God in us. Dignity of every human person. So in Christ, we're being restored, aren't we? We're being reordered in our lives, and he, and he reorders us on a personal level, but also that begins to, to impact our family. Verse 18, and he goes on in verses 18 through 21 and talks about the family, wives, husbands, and children. And then in verse 22, we get to work and vocation. Now you can say, oh, you're right with your, your heavenly Father. It begins to reorder your life. And therefore, we need to, third, recognize that work is a means of our sanctification. You might not have thought about that. You might have thought, sanctification happens on Sunday morning or my quiet time before work, but work, well, it's work. Well, actually, what I want you to see is it's sanctifying work, no matter what you're doing. It's for your sanctification. And I think it's common for us to think that our work is merely neutral. It has no, you know, 
you know, well, yeah, we know it's good. It has some benefits, but, but it doesn't have anything beneficial for the spiritual side of things. Well, but as we're going to see, actually, it does. We recognize that in Christ, the image of God is being restored in us so that we may live lives as his representative, carrying out his loving rule in the earth. Guess what? We realize that our work and our vocations, no matter what they are, are actually stewardships from God. We're stewards. Bavink said we're, we're tenants. We're renters. That's how we should view our world. These, this is our Father's world, and we are really stewards of it. This is why Paul even reminds masters, treat, chapter 4, verse 1, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. When you and I go into the workplace, go into the sphere of society, you and I are to live in such a way that we are showing the world that God's sovereign rule extends to every sphere of life. There's no job excluded, no role, no person. Even to the top tier, the master, the boss. We are showing that God rules it all. And so let me talk to you, those of you who are in a place of management, or maybe you're an employer, you oversee people at any level. You're to treat them and care for them as you have learned that your master in heaven has treated you and cared for you and seeks your best. And in this fallen world, you are going to have plenty of opportunities to extend grace and forgiveness, patience, even discipline, correction, investment into people who work for you or are under you. And it is going to be frustrating at times. And guess what? You're going to learn, oh my, how gracious the, my Father in heaven has been towards me. And the more you understand how gracious your Heavenly Father has been towards you, oh, you will extend such grace to your employees. Really, Christians in the workplace, no matter where it is, should be the best bosses, should be the best managers. That doesn't mean everybody will always like you, but it means that you actually care for those people and you want the best for them. You are to do your job and manage those people in such a way that you have a heart that longs to see them live as God has created them. You want to see them fulfill their earthly calling as an image bearer, even if they don't know Christ. Because you are teaching them God's order of design and how you manage and whatever sphere and responsibility and, and, and ability that you have been given to do that, then you should make it that way so that when the time comes, you can actually call people to, with credibility to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's flip the, the tables or look at it from the other spectrum. Same thing can be said to, to those of you who are the employee you don't have any responsibility besides your task. You don't oversee anybody, but you certainly have someone who oversees you. And I want you to consider that, that when Paul addresses this, he's actually talking primarily to that person, though he doesn't exclude the master or the boss, but he does so and he couches this conversation in the context of slavery. He does so in the context of slavery. That's what he means by bond servants, obey everything uh, uh, those who are your earthly masters. Now, just a word on this. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world is not quite the same as what we often think of slavery in 
um, here in America. But don't get the idea that, oh, it's just somehow, you know, I'm just an employee at a, at a business either. You know, you were owned. You had a master, and you could have cruel masters. And so it could be awful. But the point that I want us to see, and I think that Paul is doing here, is that he begins with the lowest in the human society. The lowest you could get in society. And he says, even if you were a slave, as awful as that is, you can live with meaning and purpose to your Heavenly Father. You can. You, what you do has meaning and purpose. In sanctification, you learn how to trust. Think about those of you who are in a place where maybe that supervisor is awful to you or doesn't acknowledge you. You can see that as a means of sanctification in your life. You, you come to this text like, I'm going to obey in everything. Not as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's a means of sanctification for you. You learn to trust. You give thanks to, to God. And if you have a good boss, you give thanks, Lord, for, for giving me wonderful employers. And you even learn how to forgive when wrong. And not to grow embittered in your heart. Wherever you are in the social status or in your vocation, your prayer should be that of Proverbs 38 and 9. You can turn there, or I think we have it up on the screen. The writer of Proverbs says, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty, get this, nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord do you, this is totally different than what the world tells you to do right no you work to get as much as you can if you can get richer get as rich as you possibly can but that's not the prayer that's modeled for us no I I don't want everything I can get. Why? Why wouldn't you want everything you can get? Because then I wouldn't trust the Lord. I remember when I was in seminary, living in Los Angeles, California, one of the most expensive cities in the world. <laughs> and we had the least amount of money that I've ever had in my life as well. And I remember my wife and I we, we were, she was couponing, trying to find everything we could get to just make it by. And I remember we just longed, if we could just win the lottery. <laughs> oh, it would solve all of our problems. But actually, it would have taught us never to trust the Lord. I can look back and see his favor and his faithfulness. And I'm not saying it was easy. It wasn't. But he's been kind to us. It goes on, not only lest I be rich, or he goes on, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When we go into our work, actually there's a battle, a temptation from one side to, to work in excess in such a way to accumulate in an unhealthy way, but then there's, there's also another fear that, that we may not fall into poverty, and we come in this with both of these tensions in mind. And so this leads us to our fourth point, that we must see or recognize our work as a means of earthly provision. 
want you to hear, even the most menial jobs or vocations are a grace from our Father in Heaven to meet needs. Even at the most base level, when a society is structured, I'm not thinking of like North Korea or something like that. That's awful. It's a grace. As we do pray to the Lord, do not give me poverty lest I be poor and resort to sinful means of meeting my needs. That's what he's getting at. Lest I be poor and steal. Now just let's consider the, the context that we're in, even here in our community. We can see in the most urbanized places, downtown Louisville, we are seeing the destruction of poverty. Generational poverty. It is overwhelming crippling, and it is resulting in thefts, stealing, crime. I want you to see in this text, and this is elsewhere, that there is a correlation with poverty and crime. Now, don't hear me say, if you're poor, you're a criminal. That's not what the Bible is saying. But you know that oftentimes the most impoverished communities also have the highest crime rates, right? That's what he's praying about. I don't want to be in such dire conditions that that I would not even think of the Lord. I would just take matters into my own hands to get by. This is why, brothers and sisters, we need to think about gospel ministry in, in terms of loving our neighbor, even in that context. And I know right now for, for most of us, it's, it's really easy to, to condemn what's going on, and we should, but in a way that has no heart of empathy. To recognize, well, you know what? Most of us have grown up in homes where we were told how to work, how to be responsible. Imagine generation after generation, broken homes, reaping the benefits, growing up in a home where you were never told the truth. And we're reaping the consequences of a society that's abandoned God's design. That doesn't mean we say good riddance. That actually means that we have gospel ministry to do. And this gospel ministry includes helping people find honest work that can meet their needs. We want people to live as God created them. And we are seeing sins havoc wreck all over their life, right? It doesn't make us hate them. It should make us be broken for them. And so Proverbs is full of exhortations, calling people to diligent work. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. There's, there's benefit. If, if people know how to work, there's blessing there. And we should want people to have opportunities and jobs. Proverbs 20, 13, love not sleep, college students, lest you come to poverty and fail all your classes. Open your eyes. And you will have plenty of bread. Just, just open your eyes. Show up. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The world is telling people there's a quicker way. There's a means of cutting corners. There's a way of getting things that will, will, will satisfy all your needs. Go and take and actually, it just leads to more poverty. You want to talk about injustice in our societies, think about those um, 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 
pay advance places all over. And there's, you know, they're not in the well-to-do areas. They're always in the most impoverished. Tax season comes around. Hey, come here. We'll give you your tax return early. Oh, we're sorry. You got a little less than what we gave you. Hey, it's only a uh, 56% interest. And you just compound it and compound it and compound it. And it's all extending. Oh, you can get money quickly. Our whole states are built off prying off the poor through lotto systems. I've stood in line, you maybe have done it too, when you're seeing someone with their EBT card buying their food, and then with their cash, they buy their lotto ticket. <laughs> I've watched them feel, I got $2 for gas, I've used my EBT for food, and then I got my $15 for all my lotto tickets. And you say, oh, that's the system, it's all broken. Yeah, yeah, maybe there is, but I think if you grew up, that's that's... But your mommy and daddy taught you, and you're doing the same. And you're never taught these biblical principles, what havoc that wreaks on a society. Where we come into play is we call people into this world and we teach them. We're patient with them. We're kind towards them, recognizing they don't know. On the other side of things, we should also avoid the temptation for greed and excess, to accumulate just to accumulate. Yes, when we come into our work, yes, Lord, we want you to provide for us. We want you to make provision, and he has done so in, in this world in a way that you can work, and we should promote a society that, that honors and incentivizes honest work. But on the other side, and we've, here's a real challenge in our capitalist society. Capitalism's good, but it can also feed greed. And it can just say, hey, tough. You know, you, you can't work as hard as I can. You don't have what I have. Stuff. I'm just going to take as much as I can. And you can foster that. But yet, actually, we find that we as Christians understand, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to work to gain as much as I possibly can. I, Lord, feed me with what is needful for me. Paul addresses the rich in his day, and particularly those in the church in Ephesus. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty. That means prideful. To live as if you don't, haven't received everything you have from the Lord. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see that? You can enjoy what the Lord provides you. But you do it in right proportion and modesty and humility. But he goes on, he says, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Many of us have been blessed immensely, haven't we? Our church collectively has been blessed immensely. It's not so that we can have everything our hearts desire. He's given us the blessings they have so that we may be generous, ready to share, having an eye towards other people, wanting to help them so they may live to the glory of God, to train them, to invest in them, not to take advantage of them. And that's what the world offers. Doesn't matter what side you're looking at, it oftentimes it's easy to just turn a blind eye to those in need so that you can continue to live as as you want. 
we see a healthy balance, I think, here. Oh, you can enjoy God's good gifts, but you also have an eye towards those who are less privileged than you. And so work is a means of earthly provision, not only for ourselves, but actually, if the Lord has blessed you, actually a means to, to serve others, to be generous and ready to share. But work is not merely concerned with the here and now. It also has implications for the future. Therefore, we must fifthly recognize that work is for your eternal joy. I want you to understand that work is for your eternal joy. And in our text, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul explicitly references our eternal reward and links it to our working heartily here on earth. Notice verse 24, what is the motivation for working heartily unto the Lord and not as to men? What do you know? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. There is an eternal reward still, and it's tied, in some sense, even to your work now. Our work at the present has implications for the future. Heaven is going to be a place of, of eternal joy where we're free, not from work, but free from sin to work freely. That might blow some of your minds. You thought heaven was to sit on the beach all day and sip a non-alcoholic beverage, right? <laughs> the present time, sin has not been finally removed, has it? No. But guess what? We are being renewed day by day in the image of Christ so that we may work to the glory of God. And as those who are made for work according to God's design, guess what? You, you do find pleasure in your work, don't you? You can find pleasure when you have a right mindset to the things that you do. You find satisfaction. I think of Proverbs 16, 26, which says, A worker's appetite works for him. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Have you ever been carried away with your work? Maybe you even skipped a meal, not, not on purpose. You were just consumed in it. It's like it became... In a good way, oh, wow, I, I enjoyed this. I was good. Someone invested me. Or maybe even as a student, you had a teacher who just, who, who just captivated you and just lit a fire in you. Actually, that's good. And you see that actually there's, there's blessing in work. Whether it's a child who's worked diligently. I've got younger children. They work diligently coloring. And they've put in all sorts of effort. And what do they do? They're proud to show you. Even you, you got projects, hobbies. Don't just think merely of your work as when you clock in. Some of you are, are gifted artists and composers and have all sorts of other giftings. In you. And when you do have your time in the evenings, you, you devote yourselves to them. Or you're, you're able to, to make things that are just absolutely wonderful. Why do you do it? So that you may share with others the beauty and splendor of what has been created. But we as Christians can do it all the more as God has intended, and we can actually bless people with what we have done. We're trying to create this world to be beautiful, right? And so whenever we order our work around God's design, recognizing it has meaning, no matter where you are on the, on the totem pole. It has meaning and purpose, both in this present time, we benefit from it, but guess what? We know that actually there's an even greater reward from our labors. There's a greater reward. So even if your job stinks, 
I'm not saying you've got to stick it out forever. If you can get out of it and you find a better option, please, by all means, do so. But you can still work to the glory of God knowing that this ultimately is not your reward, but that you will be rewarded. I think sometimes we think, you know, heaven's going to be no work. But guess what? Actually, it's going to be, and I think there's going to be continuity. You're not going to be magically some different person. You're actually going to be fully restored, glorified. And so those of you who are just on the creative side, no sin is going to hinder you, and you're going to do probably the things that you love to do, but only wish you could do here in glory. And then those of you who are more analytical and are able to compute and, and build things, and do you're going to do that with no hindrances. And then everybody else in between, all the ways that he's gifted us, we're going to be able to do so without hindrance. Those things that we love. And so we can see them and put them in the proper context now as we can of glory. I was talking with Brandon Hill, if many of you all know him. After the service, he, he's drumming today. And, and I say, hey, in heaven, you'll never have to sharpen those razors when you cut people's hair. <laughs> They'll always be sharp, and you'll be, you'll be giving people the, the cleanest haircuts they've ever had in glory. That's what's going to happen. Those fades are going to be killer. <laughs> I don't know if it'll work like that. But anyway. The point being, don't see your work as disconnected from your eternal joy. Finally, number six. I know some of you thought we'd stop at three, but we have six points this Sunday. We work heartily to the Lord when we recognize that work is a witness to Christ. That's one thing that will be, uh, even into eternity, but there's a certain component that it'll be unique in this side of glory. We're, we're trying to win people, right? When we're good employees and employers, when you're a good student or a good teacher, we show the world that we have a master in heaven. We show that our work ethic is not primarily to please men, but our God and creator who's in heaven. And in this way, even the slave or the prisoner we have examples of that in Scripture, right? Joseph, Paul, they can work unto the Lord and be honored. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's actually several verses I want to look at, but we don't have time. But here's what I want you to see. This is the revolutionary idea of Christianity. We tend to think, oh, we need to overturn societal structures. That's what you're hearing. That's the way you do it. And then somehow you're going to usher in utopia. Actually, Christianity is far more revolutionary. You notice you won't see Jesus, Paul, or any of the New Testament authors saying, lead a revolution. You won't. People like to say, oh yeah, Jesus was about turning, overturning structures and all that. Yeah, but in a different way than what you're seeing and being told today. It's things like, it's things like this, going to the slave, the one who probably being oppressed, and saying you can win the heart of your master, potentially. And then you talk to that master. Treat that slave as your heavenly father has treated you. And you know what? You might find that that master realizes, man, I can't live Christianly like this and keep owning this person. 
they're free. And begins to see all God's good design for the world. And you you begin to see that these structures begin to dissolve, crumble from the inside out. Because it deals with the root problem. Many people are talking about the problems, but many of them aren't talking about the problem. And the scriptures come to this. And guess what? The way you serve, particularly those of you who are in places of that's not appealing, doing menial jobs, things that society would look down upon, those of you who, who are maybe mistreated in the workplace, you actually have a greater opportunity than maybe anybody else to give glory to God and and highlight the gospel. Because you do what everyone would least expect. You're not argumentative, you're submissive, you do your work, you're the best employee they've ever seen. And though they may overlook you, you're doing it not to please men because you know that your eternal reward is waiting for you. Well, there's a lot more that could be said, but time is fleeting. Here's what I want you to consider. We're going to be going into time of the Lord's Supper. You might be thinking, how how does this work? I don't want you to feel guilty, like in some sense, okay, i got to work more. No, the gospel actually says that Christ has done our work for us. Christ has saved us. We we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we have been saved not, not by our works, but by grace through faith. But by the end of that passage, it says that we have been saved by grace so that we may walk in good works which God has prepared beforehand. So here's the thought that I want you to carry on into as Pastor Nathan will soon come up to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Christ has come to free us from our labors so that we can freely labor. Christ has freed us from our labors so that we may freely serve him. Not to gain his favor. No, we have his favor, and his favor and our gratitude to him enables us to live freely for him, even in our workplaces. Knowing that we aren't accepted based on our performance, but based on our working heartily unto him. And that's incredibly freeing in a world that says, you got to always measure up, or you're nothing. Not at the foot of the cross. We're sons and daughters, aren't we? Free to work to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, please do a work in our hearts. Give us ears to hear these things, hearts to receive them. And Lord, I think of those particularly who are in probably very struggling positions. Um, Lord, I'm sure they are praying, Lord, give me not poverty. Lord, I pray that you would have blessed them, and I pray that, that we as a church would be eager to share where we can and even to assist and help them find good, honest work so that they may live to your glory and live as you created them. But Lord, also guard up those of us who have abundance. Lord, let us not have everything that we may have that, to the point that we would not need you, that we would work in excess. We would not rest in you because we think we must accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. Or may we show that we trust you even as we rest and worship today. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.